Two roads diverged in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both and be one traveler. Long I stood and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other as just as fair and having perhaps the better claim because it was grassy and wanted wear. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. Two roads diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by. And that has made all the difference. Welcome, everybody, to our third episode in season two. We're calling it Invitation. And so far, we've talked about the fact that Jesus invites us to a new identity. He invites us to leave everything behind and come follow him. And this weekend, he invites us to joy. And I can't think of a more joyous occasion than a wedding. Weddings are a lot of fun. At least, they can be a lot of fun. And I have officiated my share of weddings. Weddings take tremendous amount of energy. They take a lot of planning and they are very expensive. I mean, when my wife, Marcia, and I got married, I think we spent maybe $2,000 on the wedding. In fact, our reception was in our college cafeteria. So nothing fancy about that. But these days, the average cost of a wedding in the United States is about $22,000. $22,000 for just a few hours. It better be good. Actually, I found out that here in Minnesota, for those of you who are joining me in Minnesota, the average wedding in Minnesota costs $28,000. Now, why is it $6,000 more than the national average? Is it because weddings in the winter require so much heat or in the summer so much air conditioning? I don't know. But all I know is this. If you're going to pay that kind of money, that wedding better go off without a hitch. It better be the most joyful experience for those in attendance and especially for the bride and the groom, leaving lasting, lifelong memories. But I have to tell you, I've been a part of a few weddings that haven't always gone so well and you can kind of feel the joy get evacuated out of the room. So many years ago, I was doing a wedding and there are about 150 people in attendance. And the platform that I was on and the wedding party was on was about three feet above the, the floor. And on the floor were these uh, wooden hardback pews. And so at the rehearsal, I told everybody, I always do this, I said, you know, sometimes weddings, uh, people get nervous. It might be a little bit hot or whatever. And if you get uncomfortable, make sure you keep your knees from being locked. Don't lock your knees up. And I said, if you feel faint, Please go sit down. Don't try to gut it out. We don't want you fainting and, you know, ruining the wedding. Well, 
that day, the day of the wedding, everything was going really well. I think I was at the point of the vows, all the focus on the couple pledging their lives to each other, when suddenly there was this thud and huge bang. A collective gasp came over the entire congregation that was there. The wedding party, all of us looked to see what happened. And one of the groomsmen who was standing at the edge of the platform fainted and fell backwards and hit his head on the arm of that wooden pew. I was sure we'd have the ambulance there. I thought, my goodness, this is, this is terrible. But believe it or not, he did not get knocked unconscious. People quickly rushed to him, wanted to get him out of the building so we could get him checked at the, at the ER, but he wouldn't go. He was, he was dazed and stunned, but he insisted on sitting in the front pew for the rest of the ceremony. Finally, we kind of got it all back together again. But I got to tell you, the joy had kind of left the room. And you can imagine after the couple said, I do, and walked out, and the reception started, well, most of the conversation at the reception was not about the beautiful bride and the handsome groom, but about the guy who fell backwards and smacked his head, and how can he still even, you know, be conscious after all of that happening? Yeah, weddings can have their mishaps and at least some, you know, challenging memories. I remember doing a wedding. Some of you are thinking to yourself, man, if you've had that many mishaps, I'm never going to ask you to do my wedding. I've had a lot of good weddings, but just one more. Um, it was a very large and important wedding. I think there were about four or 500 guests. And I was told by uh, the mother of the bride to announce to everybody that they were invited to the reception afterwards. Now, I always double-check those kinds of things because I don't want to make a mistake. So I said, are you sure all these people, you want them at the reception? Is that correct? She said, yes. So at the end of the service, I invited everybody to come. Well, everybody showed up, and the caterers freaked out because they were planning for only about 200. Now there's like no place to sit. They're running out of food. There's not enough cake. And at first they tried to pin the blame on me. Why would you invite all these people? But fortunately, the family spoke up and said that was our fault. Mom said it was her fault. She kind of forgotten and gotten nervous and thought everybody was invited. And uh, yeah, that was a, it was a challenge. You know, modern weddings are not the only weddings that have mishaps. Ancient weddings had them too. And lest you think that somehow ancient weddings were not as fancy, were not as expensive, were not as important, they were. Whereas the average wedding today is a few hours, you know, during the day or in the evening and it's over. In the ancient times, weddings would last for seven days. Seven days. Imagine paying for that. I mean, you saved up a lifetime for your children's wedding. And it was a regional event. It is something that the whole village, the whole town would show up to. And there was this huge expectation that there'd be plenty of food and beverage to drink. And there'd be a lot of ceremony and a lot of celebration culminating finally into the actual wedding ceremony itself. It was a big deal. And you didn't want anything to go wrong. Because if it did, everybody was going to hear about it. We're going to go to a wedding this weekend, or whenever you're watching this with me, and a crisis is looming. We are in the company of Jesus and his mother Mary and his disciples. Here we go. Let's get started. We read in John's Gospel, chapter 2, verse 1. 
The next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities. Remember, it's a week long. So Jesus' mother told them, they have no more wine. Oh, no. Now, we're not sure why Mary is there, why Jesus is there. We're not told if they were like, you know, relatives of the people that were putting on the wedding or getting married or they were close friends. I mean, none of that information is given to us at all. But somehow they, you know, Mary finds out that the wine has, has run out and this is not good because, you know, in those days, no wine, no joy. Wine and joy were kind of equated with each other. It was like the wedding cake of weddings today. It was, a, it was a centerpiece. It was an important part. And this is like a major faux pas and social blunder if they run out of wedding it, or uh, run out of wine. The whole wedding party will be embarrassed. The family will be embarrassed. There'll be gossip throughout the town as a result of it. You might be wondering to yourself, well, what's the big deal about, about wine at a, at a wedding? Well, the wine, as I said, represented joy. It, it represented God's provision, a diversion from the mundane generalities of life. It was, it was kind of like the spice of life. It was special. And it, it was like God's right hand uh, and, and passing on blessings to us as a result of that. In fact, you know, scriptures talk about the celebration and the importance of wine. Look at this. First of all, Psalm 104 says, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for a man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. Over in Proverbs chapter 3, we read, Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the best part of everything you produce. Then he, God, will fill your barns with grain and your vats will overflow emphasis on good wine. Not just, you know, any old wine, but good, rich, tasteful, filling wine. Now, I want to call a timeout because there are some of us who have grown up and we've always been taught that, you know, drinking alcohol is a sin, that it's wrong. And so we get uncomfortable, you know, when we hear about it in a message or when we see it displayed, right? Uh, in church, and this is a real bottle of wine. Makes us kind of nervous. Well, let me ask you a question. Is sex a sin? And I hope you can answer that question by saying, no, it's not, because sex is God's idea. Well, when does sex become sin? When it is taken out of the boundaries that God has established. When it does not happen between a husband and wife, a man and woman who are married before God. Well, is wine itself a sin? No, it is not, right? Because it is a gift from God through the grapes, through fermentation. It's a gift given to humans to enjoy. However, however, just like how sex can be taken out of bounds, wine can be taken out of boundaries, and drunkenness is condemned by the scriptures. We are warned against drunkenness. 
I am not advocating that you drink alcohol. I'm just simply saying you've got to look at it within its cultural framework. And you have to understand that because of what is about to happen in the text. That's the only reason I'm emphasizing this. Because I, you know, you got to understand what's about to happen, okay? So we go back to the text again, and here's what we read. Jesus replies to his mother who says, Hey, run out of wine, meaning, what are you going to do about it, son? And he says, Dear woman, that's not our problem, Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. Now, when you first read Jesus' response, it, it seems kind of cryptic. It seems rude, right? I mean, you call your mother woman? But the problem is we don't understand language there. In the original language, what he's in essence saying is very respectful. He's saying, dear ma'am. Now remember, Jesus is the son of Mary in that he was conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit. But he most importantly is the son of God. And he is speaking to her as the Son of God. So he talks to her and he says, you know, is this our problem? This isn't my time yet. You see, Jesus could see something that Mary could not see and others couldn't see. Where they saw a wedding, where the wine was running out, the joy was running out, Jesus saw a world where the joy had run out. And he sees the party and the wine and the joy that's running out. It's kind of a metaphor for this world that is without joy. And he knows that there's coming a point soon when he's going to restore joy back into the world again, back into our lives again. So that kind of helps us understand what Jesus was saying what he meant by that. Now, I love Mary's response. Look at this. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then I just kind of imagine her walking away. I mean, in essence, what she's saying is something like this. Look, he talks like this all the time. I don't always understand it, but whatever he tells you to do, do it. <laughs> and I just have to imagine there was such a special and unique relationship between Jesus and his mother. There had to have been times when Jesus must have just looked at her and just shook his head with a bit of a smile or maybe even a chuckle and said, Oh, Mom. Oh, Mom. You don't get it. So with that kind of exchange, and by the way, I love her faith in her son, don't you? It's like, I don't always understand what he's saying, but listen, do whatever he tells you. I want to be more like that. How about you? I mean, there are times I don't really understand what God is doing or what he is saying. But I want to have the attitude that says, I still know, despite whatever's happening in my life, I still know he's God. And you know what? I'm just going to do what he says, even though I don't necessarily understand it. Is, is, that, is that your attitude? Is that how you respond to the Lord, especially in those times when we're not exactly sure why we're going through what we're going through, why we're experiencing what we're experiencing? Can you just say by faith, Lord, I don't know what you're doing right now, but I know you know what you're doing. So I'm just, I'm just going to stay faithful to you. Mary's such an inspiration in that way to us, which then you know, kind of begs the question, what is Jesus going to do? Watch this. We go back to the passage. 
Standing nearby were six stone water jars. These are big ones, all right? Used for Jewish ceremonial washing. So they would use the water from those jars to wash ceremonially, uh, to cleanse themselves so they would not be unclean for eating and for prayers, etc. Each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Experts uh, figure that Probably trying to average it all out, there's about 130 gallons of fluid altogether between the six jars. Jesus told the servants, fill the jars with water. When the jars have been filled, he said, now, dip some out and take it to the master ceremonies. So the servants followed his instructions. When the master ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, Not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. A host always serves the best wine first, he said. Now can you imagine the bridegroom? Because from what we understand, he doesn't know what's going on. He probably knows they've run out of wine. And now the master ceremonies is calling you over, and you're probably thinking to yourself, I am in such trouble. A host always serves the best wine first. Oh no, here it comes. Then, when everyone has had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you have kept the best until now. And now that's what he's saying. You know, usually you take the cheap stuff, right? And you serve that to everybody. And uh, I mean, the expensive stuff, you serve that to everybody. And then, then you pour the cheap stuff out. And really, people by then can't tell anymore, right? He goes, oh my goodness, you have saved. I mean, the, the, the first stuff was good, but Wow. This is even better. This is fantastic what, what you have done. So now we see what, what Jesus has done. He's um, returned joy to the ceremony. And he's made a hero <laughs> out of, of the, the groom. Because in essence what Jesus does is he provides about the equivalent of 800 standard bottles of wine today. And it is good wine. It is potent wine. Meant to restore the potency, so to speak, of of joy and of celebration there in that experience that the people are having together that day. Now, it's interesting that Jesus chose the water pots that were used for purification. And whether Jesus purposely did that or They just happened to be there and he decided to use them. The point is, beyond just pots for water, for purifying the the soil off your body, there is a beautiful image here of what Jesus is about to do with his blood. When he sheds his blood on the cross, he sheds it to cleanse us from our sins, to purify us, to make us whole in his blood sight. That's how much he loves you and how much he loves me. And then the story ends like this in verse 11. This miraculous sign at Canaan and Galilee was the first time Jesus revealed his glory and his disciples, it says, his disciples believed in him. Which begs the question, so what is this story really all about? So I kind of thought about that. I, I, I thought, I think it could be summarized into just one big idea. I want you to think about this with me. Here's the idea. 
I think what we're learning in this passage is that Jesus is the unending wine that brings eternal joy into our heart, or as that Hebrew word, our leb, that deepest part of our lives. And all of us, all of us crave joy. We all thirst for joy. We all want to be filled with joy. The point of this whole story, this whole miracle, I think, is to tell us that, that our joy is found in Jesus. And, and his joy is unending. His joy that he offers us never, ever runs out. It is always there for us. You know, the joy of the world, the joy that the world offers, is very short-lived. It runs out quickly. And people are craving and searching for joy today and all kinds of places. You know, some people think that they'll find joy in sex, but, you know, it's here, it's experienced, and then it's over and it's gone. It's not lasting. Some people think they'll find joy in, in drugs or in alcohol itself. But after every high, there is a crash, there's a low. Some people think they'll find joy in relationships. But relationships come and relationships go. Even those we dearly love and who love us will someday be gone. We think that joy will be found in success, but success eludes us. And in our culture today, and this is true in third world countries where there's so much poverty, everybody thinks if I just have enough money, then I can buy joy. Which reminds me of... Uh, Story, it's a true story about a man by the name of William Post III. William Post III was um, a drifter. He didn't have much. And one day he took what little he had and sold it all for $40. He was really without much at all. He pawned it for $40 and he took the $40 and he did what we would say was very, would be very ill-advised. He bought some lottery tickets, except that one of his lottery tickets earned him $16.2 million. Can you imagine? Some of you are like, yes, I can imagine. I could sure use $16.2 million right now. Oh my goodness, the joy that would bring me, the happiness, the freedom I would have with that. And you would think that William Post would have had that freedom. But what's really interesting is what he said about that. And I quote from William Post, Everybody dreams of winning money, but nobody realizes the nightmares that come out of the woodwork or the problems. He spent his first payout, $400,000 in just two weeks. Can you imagine? He went bankrupt. They had to freeze the payouts. His girlfriend sued him, saying that he had promised her that she would get a chunk of his winnings. Finally, the court settled the lawsuit, and she won. Finally, after declaring bankruptcy and getting out of bankruptcy, he had still $2.6 million to his name. And then he got arrested. He got arrested because he was pointing a shotgun at somebody who was trying to get his money away from him. And then his own brother put a hit out on him and his sixth wife in hopes of killing him off so the brother would get that money. That is so sad. In the end, he finally 
spends all the rest of his money till he has nothing left. 13 years after winning $16.2 million, William Post III dies penniless, lonely, surviving off his welfare checks. We crave joy, but all the promises that the world offers us that will give us joy, the problem with them is eventually all those promises and all that supposed joy runs out. There's nothing left. It's empty and it can't be refilled again because the world really doesn't have the kind of joy that lasts in our life. But Jesus provides that unending joy. You know, there is a craving in our life for joy, isn't there? There is a, a thirst. There is a desire for joy in our lives. At least I experience that in my life, don't you? I long for that. You know, I want to I challenge you to think about why it's there. In about 1946, C.S. Lewis talked about this in a message he gave on the radio about joy. And it's so, it's so good, I, I just want to read it for you. Here's an excerpt from his message. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such thing as water. Men, and I added women, feel sexual desire. There's such thing as sex. If I find within myself a desire which no experience in the world can satisfy, the only probable explanation is I was made for something in another world. And there's truth to that. You and I crave a joy that this world cannot ever give us. Only God can give it to us. So, I have some homework assignments for you. Here's the first one. I want you to drink and get intoxicated with the joy of God's love. I encourage you to get drunk with the love of God. You know, Paul said in Ephesians 5, 18, don't be drunk with wine where there's, you know, excess and you make a fool out of yourself and you lose control of your senses. But he says, be filled or be drunk with the Spirit. Secondly, I want to challenge you this week to drink up and get intoxicated with the joy of your salvation, which is his grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Listen to what John wrote in his little letter later on. Here's what he wrote and said. He says, but if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other and the blood of Jesus, his son. Remember those jars of purification? And the blood of Jesus, his son, I love this, cleanses us from all sin, period. And God replaces all of that with his grace. And God sees you and me now as if we have never sinned. And I know you, many of you know that. You have heard that. I've said it so many times. But I personally have to be reminded of it all the time. Because 
the evil one. And my own nature has a tendency to think about how sinful I am without Christ. And I feel so unworthy, and I am so unworthy, but he has made me worthy. And I need to live in that joy. I need to intoxicate myself with that joy that I'm loved, that I'm forgiven, that my sins have been washed away. Thirdly, drink up and get intoxicated with the joy of your eternal hope. Your eternal hope. You know, after the Last Supper, Jesus didn't drink any more wine. He said he's not going to drink wine again until the ultimate wedding, which is described in Revelation chapter 19. Here it is. Plan to see you there. Then I heard again what sounded like the shout of a vast crowd or the roar of mighty ocean waves or the crash of loud thunder. Praise the Lord, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb and his bride has prepared herself. She has been given the finest of pure white linen to wear. For the fine linen represents the good deeds of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's your invitation. And he added, these are true words that come from God. I can't wait. How about you? What a blessing that's going to be. What a blessing that's going to be. The joy of the Lord is available to you and available to me. But you know something? You've got to be willing to choose his joy. And that sometimes is hard to do when our circumstances seem unjoyful. I want to share a story with you from an acquaintance of me, an acquaintance of mine. I said me because his name is the same as mine. His name is Dale as well. And uh, I saw him last week at an important uh, conference that I was at. It was on church planting overseas. And he and his wife are very committed to it and are, are involved in leading this important ministry of planting churches in places where they so desperately need churches. And as I said, his name was Dale. And he got up and he shared with our group that he and his wife had just gotten the news that his wife has cancer, and they thought it was cancer in the liver, and now they realize it's also cancer in her ovaries, which is really not good news at all. And so when he announced this, I thought to myself, and I think a lot of us did, what are you doing here? If your wife has that going on in her body, in her life, you should be home with her. And he knew we were thinking that. He said, you're probably wondering why I'm here. He said, I just want you to know that my wife is so committed to planting churches and getting the gospel out to others that she insisted that I come. And then he looked at us and he said, you know, we've always had a motto in our house. And the motto is this, we choose joy. I'll tell you what, um, that's the most important thing I heard in the three days I was at this conference. And I heard a lot of great things. We choose joy. There's a lot that's going wrong in this world right now. A lot. We could spend 
week after week after week talking about all that is wrong in this world. We could talk about the things that are wrong in our, in our lives, in our families, in our health. We could just go, I mean, we could just go on and on with all the negativity in this world. Or you and I can choose joy. What are you going to choose this weekend? Will you choose the joy of the Lord? Will you allow your life to be intoxicated with his presence? Would you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Lord, we have a choice to make today. We can choose to wallow in self-pity in the negative circumstances we may find ourselves in or in this crazy world with all that is wrong. Or God, we can choose the joy of our salvation. We can choose the joy of hope. We can choose the joy of being in relationship with you. And I pray, oh God, that that is what we would do. Make that choice. In Jesus' name, amen. This weekend, we're going to celebrate Holy Communion together. It's interesting when you think about communion, you do think about the bread and the wine. But you know, as we said, the wine will eventually always run out. But the love and the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness of God never, ever runs out. So if you had a chance to get some juice, some bread, if you've received some where you are right now, would you just take that out? And let me remind you, that Jesus said that the bread represents his body, which is given for you and for me. Take, he says, and eat. And after the bread, Jesus took the cup. He said, this cup represents my blood which is poured out for you. And there's a sense in which it continues to be poured out because it continues to cleanse, continues to forgive, and will cover our sins for all eternity. He said, through my blood, I make a new covenant with you and my Father, that by faith in me and me alone, you have access to my Abba, and my Abba becomes your Abba. He wants to come and live and dwell in the temple of your being. Take this cup and drink. Next weekend, I want to talk to you about something extraordinary. I want to talk to you about where you can find the holy presence of God. And it's closer than you think. God bless you. We'll see you next weekend.